Father, indeed, this is the case. This is why we come so confidently to you, for we know the kingdom and the power and the glory all belong to you. Lord, that it is through your truth that you sanctify us, and we ask, Lord, that you would meet us here this morning, open our ears to hear, and make our hearts palatable to the message and desire it and to taste and see that indeed it is good. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I would invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. We're going to look specifically this morning at Psalm 61, and I want to encourage you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Psalm 61, to the choir master with stringed instruments of David, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, Salah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May be he enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. This is God's word. Please have a seat. Psalms are are they're they're interesting. They're so different as you go from one to another. I mean, even as last week we looked at a psalm that called down in, in its curses upon our enemy, that we would bathe our feet in the blood of the wicked. Here we have simply this, out, this cry to the Lord for help in a time of need, and a lot of the psalms reflect that. And if we're not careful, I think we can get lost in psalms. We can read a psalm like this, and it just kind of go right through us, for there's, there's none of those verses that just jump out in such a way that startles us. It seems like a a pretty typical type of psalm, but there's so much here that teaches, I think especially in the the way in which this psalmist puts these things together. Uh, Sometimes a psalm will go by you because you've never really been in the situation in which the psalm was written, and then other times a psalm will strike you in a way that perhaps it has not struck you before because you happen to find yourself in a position that lends itself to the same position that the psalmist was in when he wrote it. You know, perspective really can be all of that important. And this psalm is simply, we find the, the opening verses to be telling us what the, what the request, the supplication is from the psalmist. Hear my prayer, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. So that's the, that's the condition. He's crying out to the Lord when his heart is faint. So, when is your heart faint would be the question of when this psalm would be a psalm that would get your attention, that would all of a sudden have a lot of meaning in it. When is your heart faint? Is it when you find yourself frightened? Is it when you find yourself anxious? Is it when you find yourself simply worn out and tired, weary, ready to give up, ready to find something else to do? You know, my heart is faint. 
That's the, that's the situation that the, the psalmist is describing. And all of a sudden, when you find yourself in the same situation of the psalmist, it brings it into view. You've probably experienced that with other aspects of Scripture when you've, you've read through a passage time and again, and it's never really struck you. And then one morning you read it, and all of a sudden it's like your eyes are open and it just has this bright light shining on it. You know, someone has opened your eyes, something perhaps, some event perhaps, has put you in a place where you now have a perspective in which you can see what this psalm is talking about or what this passage is talking about. Um, perspective uh, is that important. You know, there was, I, I want to give you an example. Um, maybe I've given you, maybe you're tired of all these, these writing examples, but uh, uh, last summer as we were on our, our trip through South Dakota, we were going to be approaching Mount Rushmore, and maybe some of you have been to Mount Rushmore. It's a fascinating place. Uh, we visited there, uh, Ron and I and my sister, back in the 90s, early 90s, was it? 92, something like that? 93. And uh, I haven't seen it since, and I was very much looking forward to seeing Mount Rushmore. But it, we, as we rode through all of the Badlands, we never actually got to see it. We were close, well, except for one time. We were close, but every time we got close, it was shrouded by the hills and the trees that were in the way, until we, wrote, we, we rode up in this one particular road on a place called Iron Mountain, uh, which the road kind of circles its way, winds its way around the mountain until you get to the top. And as it does that, as the road has been cut into the mountain, there are certain places where it's literally cut through the mountain. So there's this one car width, length, uh, one car width uh, tunnel uh, going through the mountain. But it's so fascinating the way they've built this road that as you come around these, uh, these roads and you get to where you're facing the tunnel, you see through the frame Mount Rushmore. They've designed it so that it's framing uh, that particular monument. It's so fascinating. It really startles your attention. It was the only time in the whole trip that we saw that. And as we made it through the tunnel, we, we all pulled over to do a little hiking and to try to get a better look and maybe take a picture of, the, of the, the monument itself. But as we do so, it's all of a sudden, it's hard to see because it's way, way off in the distance. It's very small, and it's not framed by anything. There's just the open sky, and it's just these little specks. And you think it's, it's all perspective. When we're on the other side of the mountain, everything has been blocked out so that all we can see is that little area. So that dot is the only thing that your eyes can focus on. Perspective is everything. And when you have, for a psalm like this to have any meaning, you have to have had some experience in your life where you have felt a measure of faintness in your heart. And not only felt a faintness of a measure in your heart, but you found that faintness of your heart uh, uh, affected, treated, soothed by the presence of God. And that's what I, that, that's the, that's the perspective that the psalmist is bringing in this particular prayer. It's why this prayer has any meaning at all. And I want to walk you through it to see the nature of it, how, he, how he's structuring this prayer. For he's bringing his prayer in a time when, he's, when his heart is faint because, or in, because he can reflect on past which is given in perspective. And that reflection on the past which shapes his perspective is, is shaping his present desires even as he offers up this prayer. And it's, it's also driving his 
life commitments, his future commitments. So if you want to think of it, you know, the, the past, the present, and the future, what's going on. And so that's the structure of the psalm. And it's, it's so important, as you, especially as you understand the good news about what God has done with his son, Jesus Christ. You have to get the order of right of what happens in the past, what's happening in the present, and what does that do for us in the future. So first of all, I want to consider this past perspective. And again, the supplication of the prayer comes right out of the first couple of verses. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to my, hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. So that's the request. His heart is faint. He wants to be led to the rock. Now, why does he want to do that? Why is he asking that at all? Because the perspective he has is, is in verse 3. It's not very long. It's not a, expounded very much, but it's just right there. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. There's so much meaning there. I mean, this is really the foundation of why this prayer is able to be prayed by David. He's coming to the Lord in a time when his heart is faint, asking that he would lead him to the rock because he's experienced what it's like to stand on that rock. He's found in the past God to be a refuge in his time of need against his enemies. And, and if you think about the life of David, which we've, in essence, been talking about peripherally as we go through these psalms, we can see time and time and time again where he has found himself in deep trouble, and yet God has rescued him out of every single one of them. So his perspective is well-shaped. This prayer is not just... Uh, poetry that he's written down, these are something that's been forged in his heart because of his past experiences. So think about David. I mean, when we, when we meet David, he's, he's introduced as a man who has God's heart and is therefore anointed by Samuel, even as a kid. You know, he stands apart from everyone else because he has a, uh, he's a man after God's own heart. He's just a boy at the time. In the very next scene, we see him going up against or offering to go up against this great giant of a man named Goliath, the Philistines, as he hears him taunting the, the army of Israel as he brings food to his brothers who are part of the army. When he hears that taunt, he goes before Saul and he volunteers to go. He's just a boy. Saul looks at him and says, you're just a boy. Why on earth would I send you? There's a lot of things he could say. Well, no one else is stepping up, right? It's like, where, where's the your own champion? He says, you can send me because the Lord has given me victory over the bear in the lion as I watched my father's sheep. Now, that is a fascinating thing for a teenager to say. If a teenager had gone up against a bear and a lion, I think our, ten our tendency would be to, to be, you can send me because I'm able to beat a bear and a lion. But, you know, we tend to be very prideful about things like that. And yet David understands these were bigger things than I could ever accomplish. Those were terrifying situations. Imagine yourself coming into face to face with a lion, and all you have to defend yourself is a sling or a bear. I mean, how many of you would want to face a bear even with a, you know, a, a large gun? Here he is, just a, a sling. So you can imagine the faintness of heart he must have felt, perhaps offering a prayer and finding miraculously him defeating the bear and the lion. See, he has perspective. He knows what it's like for God to be a refuge when he comes into something, facing something that is literally impossible. 
And so he makes that offer. And of course, the story goes, as he goes up against Goliath, is able to, to defeat Goliath. Uh, the army has a great victory that day. Saul recruits him into his service. He becomes a mighty general, earning the favor of all the people, so much so that Saul grows jealous. Saul sets out to kill David, and now David is on the run again, facing situation in which his heart is faint. As Saul comes close on several occasions to killing him, one trying time, time one is in his presence, trying to pin him to the wall with his own spear, and Saul escapes. Another time when he's so frightened that Saul's going to come after him when he's sleeping, he, he leaves, filling his bed with a false dummy. Another time he goes, has to leave his, his home and doesn't even go back to his house to collect anything, doesn't have any food, doesn't have any armor, any weapons. We, we told that story a few weeks ago. And one time he flees even to his enemies, thinking that maybe that's a place where I can find refuge from Saul. And he finds another enemy there, pretending to be insane, as we read the story about letting the spittle come down his beard, scratching on the doors so that he's finally sent away. So, the, so we see time and again, David has been in a situation where his heart would have definitely been fainting before him, ready to give up, very weary, scared for his life. And every time, every time, God has rescued him. He knows what it means for God to be his refuge. And so when he finds his, his heart faint now, he has this perspective upon which to draw. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, because I know what it's like to stand on that rock. Now, some of you, a psalm like this doesn't really mean anything because you don't know what it's like to be in a place where your heart is faint. Or maybe you have had a, time, a past time when your heart is faint, and you need to learn how to look back at that. Look back. Do you see the Lord's hand at work in your life in past difficult trial times? Do you have the ability to have perspective to see that, yes, the Lord is a refuge. He is a rock. You know, I look at every, every man out there, I can't speak for the ladies, but for the men, the fact that you are still alive should be testament that there is a God. I mean, how many times growing up, for most typical boys, should they have died? I mean, I can think of a handful of times that, yeah, I probably should have died, but miraculously did not. So even if you didn't at the time, you can look back and see, man, God's hand has been upon my life. He is a rock to whom that I can appeal when my heart is faint. He is there. He is involved. So the past perspective is really what shapes the reason why we can offer up such a prayer, especially if you look back at your own life and are able to gain the perspective of seeing that. And that, if you let it, will shape your present desire. And we see this coming out in the next verse of Psalm 61. In verse 4, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. This is his present desire. He says, let me dwell in your tent. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. This is what I desire. And I desire this because your past dealings with me were so wondrous, 
that now I see there's nothing I want more than to dwell in your tent forever. This is my greatest desire. Now, I see so many people who, who believe themselves to be followers of Christ and yet don't know what this desire is. They don't have this desire burning in their hearts. They may call themselves a follower of Christ, may call themselves a Christian. They may be able to tell you the gospel. They may be able to explain it to you. They may have all the answers to the catechism questions that were drilled into them and trained them as they were a child, if that was the case. But they've never really experienced this faintness of heart in such a way that they tasted and understood that God indeed was the rock. Because if they had, if they really knew what it was like to be in the presence of God, then this would be their burning desire. This would be your burning desire. Uh, There's some stories, there's a story in the New Testament that illustrates this, perhaps a familiar story to some of you. It's a conversation that Jesus has with one of the religious leaders of His day. We find it in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Uh, One of the Pharisees asked Him, that is Jesus, to eat with Him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. You see, here's the perspective of a woman who has had a faintness of heart, and she has found that the Lord indeed is good. Now, in her case, as she is this known sinner in the region, she has found that her sins have been forgiven, and that itself she has discovered is something of great delight. Her past has been wiped away. Her guilt has been removed. Her shame has disappeared. She can stand in the presence of God Himself and know that's where she is standing without any fear. And so she brings her greatest gift, her her alabaster jar, something that could have potentially cost her all of her wages and offers it to the Lord. You see, this is her burning desire because she knows what it's like to receive refuge from the Lord, in the Lord. 
Whereas the religious leader, the Pharisee of the day, doesn't know what that's like. He has no real interest in Jesus. Jesus is comparing the two. When I came into your house, you didn't offer me any of these things, and yet she does. It was your home. You should have been the one to offer these things, and yet you haven't. It is interesting that the Pharisee is interested in Jesus and having Him in his home, but he's not interested in doing any of these things for Jesus. And I think that's, you can draw somewhat of an analogy for kind of the, the typical Christian of how the cultural Christian who, who wants to invite Jesus into his home but doesn't want his home to be disrupted. He doesn't want to have to, anything to really change. He just wants to have Jesus there. Whereas the woman leaves her home, leaves everything to pursue where Jesus is, and gives up her most expensive possession. You see, there is desire that's in her. She is not some more righteous person than the Pharisee. She just has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and it has reset everything about her desires. Jesus gives some parables about this in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of the pearls, of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is, this is what it's like if you have been in a place where your heart is faint and you found God to be a refuge. Now he becomes your burning desire, your burning desire. And I'm hoping that those of you who are here who, who know the Lord, but you don't feel that burning desire, your, your challenge is to look back in your life and see those moments in which, yes, you were in a time of need, and you found that need, you gained that need, and see God's hand at work. Give credit to the Lord for where you are today, for none of you are where you are by accident. The fact that you're here this morning means some things have taken place in your life to bring you here. Now, don't let those moments be for nothing. Open your eyes to see who it was that was behind those movements, those moments, those reasons. This also shapes our future commitment. We see this as we continue with the next verse. For you, O God have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You know, Psalms talk often about vows. It's not something that we often think of uh, from our perspective, from our, the, the common way we talk. We don't talk about the importance of vows, but the Old Testament, the importance of vows were very significant. When you made a vow to the Lord, you were to keep it. And the aspect of making a vow was making, in essence, some offering of your life to the Lord. I'm going to live my life this way. I'm going to do this. So a vow is an act of obedience before the Lord. And what's so important to read a psalm like this is to recognize the order in which these things come. You see, the first thing we do is look back on our life to see how the Lord's hand has been at work, rescuing us in our times of need. So our desire now is fanned into flame to follow the Lord. And as a response of that, we make vows. We commit ourselves. We live lives of obedience. You see, the order has to be that way. The reason the Pharisee wasn't moved, because he had gotten the order wrong. He says, well, I have done all the right things, therefore I deserve 
for you to come into my house. Where is the love for Jesus there? There's no reason to love a God like that. There's a reason to placate Him. There's a reason to try and manipulate Him. But the woman, on the other hand, gets it right. The Lord first touched her, and she tasted Him, and so she desires Him, just as the psalmist is doing now. The reason I'm bringing my vows before the Lord, because that is my offering of worship, because I desire to live in your house, and my desire is pushing me to want to please you. For isn't that what we do with the ones that we love the most? Our life takes shape in such a way because we so desperately want to please them. I mean, think about those of you who are married, your spouse, and hopefully it's still that way, but perhaps most when you first started courting your spouse, when you first fell in love, you were consumed with finding ways to please that person, to win that person's heart, to get their attention. These were all expressions of your desire. They were a lot of work, perhaps. You know, in our days in college, it was kind of the in thing to do to be as creative as you can in coming up with, with a date for your, your, with the idea of a date for your date or a creative way to invite your date upon a date. And so we spent lots of energy and creative juices coming up with inventive ways to do things with our dates. One of the first dates I took my wife on was to fly a kite at the lake, and I made her marshmallow cream and what was else? Peanut butter sandwiches with peach knee-high. Now, who would ever do that? I'm surprised she's still with me. But there was a lot of creative energy in going to way, how can I do something that she's never done before? <laughs> that was the idea. And so when you think about giving vows to the Lord, looking to see how has He commanded me to live, your response is, I want more than anything else to please my Lord. And so I look to see, how can I obey? How can I follow? And by the way, that's the ultimate expression of trusting the Lord. Do I trust the Lord? He tells me to live a certain way. Do I believe it's for my best? Well, whether you do or not is reflected on if you choose to follow it or not. Because you're going to run into all kinds of opportunities in the world to go different ways. You're going to be pulled by the world to go in different ways. You're going to be treated by such in the world by your own lusts, your own desires, by the cultural influence of the world to find other things to desire. They are constantly presenting us with things that we should be desiring. I mean, that's the nature of the advertising industry, is it not? It's appealing to that sense that we know something is innately missing in our life, and they're offering this as the thing to fill it, saying, you should be desiring this car. You should be desiring this retirement investment. You should be desiring this pizza, whatever it is. When the psalmist is saying, I have perspective in my own life where I've seen the Lord's hand at work leading me to where I am. I know that He is a rock higher than I. And I've experienced that. And so now my greatest desire is to dwell in His tent forever. 
And so it's shaping my future commitments. Now, the reason we know that this is a good idea, that this is not a wasted energy, is how the psalmist ends in verses 6 and 7. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May be he enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. This whole prayer is predicated on the idea that God preserve the life of the king. Now, that wouldn't be uncommon in, in an ancient world. I mean, you're, you were uh, only as well off as your king was well off. If your king was in trouble, it meant you were in trouble. It meant the kingdom was in trouble. If the king was weak, it meant you were weak. Everything rested on the success of the king. And so the psalmist is making this grand appeal. Preserve the life of the king, for our life is bound up with his. Our well-being is bound up with his. Now, in David's day, that kingdom was promised, of course, to him and to his descendants after him, with the great promise in 2 Samuel 7 about that he will always have one of his sons sit on the throne forever, that there will be one to whom it finally comes that will sit on that throne forever. And we have the advantage of coming from the New Testament perspective where we know who that is. We know that Jesus was not only the Son of David, but He was the Son of God. And we know where He sits today because we read about that in the book of Acts when He ascends to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. His kingdom is absolutely secure beyond the reach of anything that could threaten us. So how do we know that our vows, our obedience, our trust is not in vain? Because it's bound up in the life of the King. For Jesus Christ Himself came, died the death that we deserve to die, overcame death, rose from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of God. So there is absolutely now nothing, nothing that can thwart His ability to be a refuge for you in the time of need. So, this morning I simply ask, where is your desire? What do you do when your heart is faint? To what do you turn to be your rock and your refuge? Let's follow this psalmist. Let's let the work of God that's already taken place in your life fuel you with a desire to when your heart is faint, seek after Him, knowing that He can answer because His kingdom is absolutely secure at the right hand of the Father. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for psalms like this that teach us how to pray when we find ourselves feeling weary and worn out, feeling uncertain about the future, feeling perhaps even a bit desperate. We know that we can come to You and appeal to You as our rock of refuge from the struggles that we face in this life. Ultimately, we know those are true because they protected us against Your own wrath when it was poured out. Jesus took that upon His own shoulders so that as we seek refuge in Him, we find ourselves safe. Help us, Lord, to look to You as our refuge. In Jesus' name, amen.